Hello, and welcome to the Film Jerk Podcast. I am your host, Edward Havens. Before we get started, I wanted to welcome any new listeners who have recently decided to give this podcast a spin because they heard the discussion I had with the entity known as Podcast Father on his show, Indie Podcaster. I'm writing and recording this show before he posts our discussion, so I'm not sure what he kept in and what he left out. I'm looking forward to hearing it myself. So on this show, we of course talk about the movies, and specifically about the 80s in movies. Sometimes we'll talk about a filmmaker's output during the decade, as we've done so far with Steven Spielberg and Martin Scorsese. Sometimes it'll be an actor or an actress's output during the decade. Sometimes it'll be a specific film, like Killer Clowns from Outer Space or St. Elmo's Fire. And quite regularly, we'll talk about a specific distributor, how they came to be, the films they released, and why they are no longer around. But this week, we're truly going to do something we haven't done before. Instead of talking about a specific movie or a specific filmmaker or a specific actor or a specific distributor, we're going to talk today about something that was ubiquitous back in the 1980s, but has pretty much disappeared today. Something that, if you're, say, under the age of 30, you've probably never heard of. But if you're, say, over the age of 40, you have fond memories of. The Dollar House. Dollar houses, which were also known as discount theaters, second-run theaters, or sub-run theaters, were movie theaters that showed movies after they left first-run theaters, and the admission price would, in the 1980s, often be $2 or less. I've talked about and referenced them a number of times in the past, and I've gotten questions from people asking me to explain more. So, here we are. But of course, how dollar houses came to be is a story in and of itself. We're going to travel back in time, back to 1930. The United States was in the middle of the Great Depression, and one of the best ways someone with very little money could keep entertained was going to the movies. In 1930, 50 million people were going to the movies every single week. By 1941, that number would rise to 60 million people a week. But then the Imperial Japanese Navy Air Service would attack the Pearl Harbor Naval Base in the American territory of Hawaii on December 7, 1941, putting the United States square into the Second World War. Our nation was instantly changed. Millions of men and women would join the fight, while millions of others would go to work in the factories supporting the war effort. And between the war and the Depression, People needed the distraction of the movies, with more than 80 million people going to the movies again every single week. That would be more than 60% of the entire population, from New York City to Los Angeles, Seattle to Miami, Portal, North Dakota to McAllen, Texas. We, as a nation, enjoyed, as Vin Diesel might say, the movies. <laughs> After the war ended and life started getting back to normal, people were still going to the movies week after week. The first full year after World War II ended, 1946, saw the highest movie theater attendance figures. More than four and a half billion movie tickets were sold that year, which averaged out to 90 million people weekly. Nearly 25% of Americans' recreational expenditures at the time were spent going to the movies. But by 1950, Movie attendance started to decline, and decline fairly steadily for decades. And there were three main reasons why that started happening. The first reason was due to something called the Paramount Decree. For many years, the Hollywood studios 
had some of the earliest examples of vertical integration. They produced their movies on their production lots, starring actors and actresses they had under contract, written and produced and directed by others under contract. The studios owned their own film processing plants. They would release their movies, and those movies would often play at large theaters in each city's downtown area that were owned by the studios. I'm not going to go into too much detail, as I previously covered all of this at the start of episode 58, the first part of a three-part miniseries on the United Film Distribution Company. Suffice it to say that the Paramount Decree would force studios to either give up the production side of their business, the distribution side, or the exhibition side, and they all chose to give up their theaters. So, if you wanted to see the latest Humphrey Bogart movie, for example, for many years, you would either need to head downtown to see the film at a monstrous theater owned by Warner Brothers first run, or you'd have to wait months or even years before that Bogart movie would leave that theater and eventually play at one of the smaller, independently owned second run theaters. And that theater would often be just down the street from the Warner Brothers theater that it had been playing at in the first place. The second factor was, of course, television. Although the concept of television predated the war by more than a decade, and televisions were being manufactured and sold before the United States entered the war, mass acceptance of the medium would not begin until the early 1950s, when smaller, more affordable units began to appear in the marketplace. In 1950, less than 4 million American households owned a television. By 1955, that would rise to over 30 million. And of course, once your family bought a television, whatever you watched on it would be quote-unquote free, as long as you don't count the commercials that ran to sell you toothpaste, deodorant, and dietary supplement tonics. You didn't have to dress up, leave the house, drive downtown, find parking, stand in line to buy your tickets, find seats for yourself and your family in the theater, deal with lines at the snack bar and the restrooms, and the deal with the hassle of getting back home. Studios didn't like television at first because they rightly feared it would steal some of their thunder. However, that fear would drive a new wave of innovation to keep people coming back to the movies, including the introduction of Fox's CinemaScope and other widescreen processes. The television screen dimensions were chosen specifically because of its approximation of movie theater screen dimensions, an aspect ratio called Academy Standard which saw a screen be 1.375 feet wide for every foot the screen was tall. Now various widescreen processes with names like Cinerama, Super Panavision 70, and VistaVision were making movie screens so wide, many people sitting in the front half of the theater would feel enveloped by the movie. But the third, and for me, most important change of why movie theater attendance kept falling during the late 1940s and throughout the 50s was the location of theaters or more specifically, the lack of theaters in the new suburban areas. After World War II, many families started moving away from the main downtown areas of major cities and into the suburbs where homes were larger and more affordable and people weren't stacked on top of each other like they were in the big city. But before the early 60s, there were very few theaters being built and operated in the suburbs, despite the affordability of land in the area. It wouldn't be until the early 1960s when Stanley Durwood, president of Durwood Theaters of Kansas City, Missouri, decided to find a solution to his company's problems. All of his company's 40 theaters in Missouri and Kansas were large 
single-screen theaters in the respective city's downtown area, and attendance had fallen dramatically at all of them over the past 15 years, to the point where he would close the balcony sections of his theaters because he wouldn't need the seats anyway and it would require less staff to patrol the theater. Durwood would think to himself that if he could find a way to show another movie in the balcony, he could conceivably double his money. The solution arrived during construction of a new Durwood Theater at a new shopping center in one of Kansas City's new suburbs. He discovered the building structure was flawed and could not house a large movie screen. They would need to build a support wall literally down the center of the building. So the wall went up, and with that, a new concept called the multi-cinema was born. Two theaters side by side under the same roof. Ironically, the first movie to play at the Parkway Twin when it opened on July 12, 1963, The Great Escape, starring Steve McQueen, was so popular it would play staggered showtimes on both screens. It would be months before attendance fell to a point where it was finally worth it for Durwood to bring a second movie in to play on one of the screens. By 1966, Durwood would open the first four-screen movie theater, and by 1969, the first six-screen theater. In 1968, Durwood would have closed or sold off all of his single-screen theaters, and he would rebrand Durwood Theaters as American Multi-Cinema, or as it would become more simply known, AMC. As people moved farther and farther away from the centers of the cities, the less inclined they were to travel 15 or 20 miles to see a movie, especially when Dad has already spent time in traffic driving home from his job in the center of the city. But by the time theater companies figured this out and started to build most of their new theaters in the suburbs, people had already fallen out of the habit of going to the movies with any regularity. By 1970, American movie theater attendance had dropped by 75% over the previous 20 years. The discount theater wasn't an especially new idea in the 1960s and 70s. The neighborhood theaters, where movies would play after they left the downtown movie palaces, were often less expensive. A movie like Gone with the Wind could play for years with a $2 general admission ticket price when the average movie ticket price was a quarter, even during the Great Depression. But the concept of a discount theater would gain traction in the Vietnam-era America because so few of the middle-class suburbanites were willing to deal with the hassle of going downtown for a movie, many of those grand movie palaces would stop showing first-run movies and instead would pair two older movies together for a ticket price of less than one first-run movie. And for the families who had moved into the downtown apartments abandoned a generation earlier during the mass exodus to the suburbs, who wouldn't want to see two slightly older movies for 75 cents when a first-class ticket for a single movie was approaching $1.60. Exhibitors loved discount houses because it was literally free money for them. The 35mm prints for each movie were, were already printed, the theaters paid for the shipping of the prints to and from the storage depot, there would be no advertising cost to them, and they would collect 35% of the ticket sales. Theaters would always try to book the films that were the most popular in first run, to try and lure in those who hadn't had the chance to see the movies in first run, as well as those who had seen the movies before and just wanted to catch them on the big screen again. And since there were no cable channels or other mechanical devices that would try to replicate the movie-watching process at home at the time, 
there was very little competition for these type of theaters. Discount theaters would really flourish in the late 70s and early 80s. Companies like AMC, United Artists, Man Theaters, and Pacific Theaters would continue to build more theaters in the suburbs with more screens. So when one of these companies built a larger theater with six screens in, say, 1978, they would convert a two-screen theater built down the street in 1965 or a four-screen theater built around the corner in 1972 and convert it into a discount house. Or if there were too many competitors who built other bigger theaters in the same area, the company that ran the older building would convert it to a discount house. Which is what happened to my first theater as a general manager, the Blossom Hill 4 in the southern part of San Jose, California. The theater had been built in the early 70s, as more and more people started to move into the southern enclaves of what would become Silicon Valley, but would be converted into a discount house in the early 1980s when Century Theaters built the Almaden 5, a smaller version of their famed dome cinemas less than a mile down the street, and AMC Theaters built a six-screen theater inside the Oak Ridge Mall, a half a mile from the theater, literally between the Blossom Hill 4 and the Almaden 5. By the time I had been assigned the manager of Blossom Hill 4 in the late spring of 1989, it had already been a discount theater for several years and would remain quite popular amongst the local residents, especially teenagers who were on a limited budget. By 1989, the ticket price at my theater was $1.50, so calling it a dollar house was kind of a misnomer, but the kids didn't care. Where else could a teenager go on a Friday or Saturday night with their friends and be able to see two movies? and get a popcorn and a soda, and spend only $5 in the process. We also had a small arcade on-premises, only three games, but if you had some extra pocket change, it was a fun way to spend a little more time with your friends before you had to go back home. Those who follow the podcast on Twitter can see a photo of the street-side marquee for my theater, which was taken in late 1986, showing the movies that were playing there in any given week. What was cool about being the manager at a discount house was, more often than not, you got to choose what you played each week. Your theater would have a booker at the home office, someone whose job it was to, as you can guess, book films into theaters. I don't remember the name of my booker back then, but they would book all the United Artists theaters in the Bay Area, from San Francisco to Salinas. And with my theater being the only dollar house in the circuit in all of the Bay Area, and thus regularly the lowest-earning theater for the circuit in the Bay Area, I was always the booker's last call. But it was usually the most fun call for them because the pressure was off them. They didn't have to worry about the competition getting a movie we really wanted to play. In fact, they wouldn't really even book the theater. They would give me a list of movie titles which were available to my theater, and I could decide for myself which films I wanted to play and which films would be paired together. Occasionally, when a big movie like Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade became available to me, I would be told that it could not be paired with another film, but that would only happen a few times per year. But the booker and I would sit on the phone discussing how certain titles did at the theaters that were dropping it for another movie, and then I got to make the choices of what I played. And let me tell you right now, of all the theaters I've worked at, and all the different responsibilities I had over those years, the ability to decide what I was going to play each week was one of the highlights of my 26 years of working as a movie theater manager. It's rare when a manager gets to decide what plays at their theater, and it was something I got to do three different times at three different theaters 
with three different companies, and only two of them were discount theaters. But that's another story for another time. So there I was, a young and cocky 21-year-old, the youngest general manager in the entire company, in charge of my first theater, and I got to decide what I wanted to play. Now, do you want to know the surest way to get a cocky young adult to become an even worse pain in the neck? Give them that responsibility and watch them crush it. That first year I was at the Blossom Hill, our ticket sales went up 15% over the previous year. The first time the theater had seen an increase in ticket sales in five years. Why? I seem to have had a knack for putting films together and knowing when to refresh a pairing. For example, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. The movie had opened first run in mid-February 1989, and by June it was made available to discount theaters like mine. I don't remember which movie I paired with it the first week, but I did know that Bill and Ted should be the prime movie. What does that mean? So, movie theaters usually show a movie five times a day, as long as the movie isn't too long. If a movie is an hour and 45 minutes long, and has 10 minutes of previews and commercials, you could do showtimes at 11.45 a.m., 2.15, 4.45, 7.15, and 9.45 p.m. That 7.15 show is your prime show, because that's the showtime that would be most attended each day. Whether it was a Saturday, the busiest movie-going night of the week, or Tuesday, the slowest movie-going night of the week. Which, by the way, is why many theaters have a discount Tuesday ticket policy. Any show that starts between 6 and 8.30 p.m. is considered a prime showtime. With a movie like Bill and Ted, which only ran 90 minutes, one could actually squeeze in a sixth show each day if they really wanted. You could do shows at 10.30 a.m., 12.45, 3, 5.15, 7.30, and 9.45 p.m., still have 35 minutes between shows to clean theaters, clean and restock the bathrooms, start selling tickets for the next show, sell everyone their popcorns and sodas and candies and hot dogs, thread the projector, and get that next show on screen. But realistically, you could only do that if you squeeze those showtimes in while not conflicting with the other movies. Because as you know, if you've been to a movie theater on a busy night in the last decade or so, at one of those theaters that has 12 or 16 or 24 or 30 screens, the lines at the snack bar can get long, especially at AMC theaters where they have or at least had before the pandemic, like three different snack bar lines at the same frickin' snack bar, depending on the level of your paid or free AMC Stubzid membership. What a bunch of malarkey that was. So, if you had a fairly popular and busy four-screen theater, you would stagger your showtimes. Because in June 1989, you might still be playing the Bette Midler movie Beaches, which ran two hours and three minutes. And you might still be playing the Terry Gilliam movie The Adventures of Baron Munchausen, which ran two hours and six minutes. And you might still be playing the Best Picture winner of 1988, Rain Man, which ran two hours and 14 minutes. And you might have paired Rain Man with another Best Picture nominee from 1988, Mississippi Burning, which ran two hours and eight minutes. And you might still be playing the Disney animated film The Rescuers, which had been re-released in the theaters earlier in the year, and only ran an hour and 17 minutes. You might still be playing the Tony Danza movie She's Out of Control, which, like Bill and Ted, only ran an hour and a half. And you might have just started playing the Clint Eastwood movie Pink Cadillac, which was already playing in discount theaters a mere month after opening, with a running time of two hours and two minutes. 
and you're adding 10 minutes of age-appropriate trailers in front of each movie. Now think about that for a moment. You have eight different movies, two on each screen, with running times that wildly vary from 77 minutes to 134 minutes. You want to make sure, if possible, to have your movie start 15 minutes away from each other so your box office and snack bar don't get too jammed. Because in 1989, you didn't have online ticket sales where your guests could choose their own seats in advance. In fact, at a discount theater, you didn't even have a computerized box office. You would still have the old punch-and-fold ticketing system, pictures of which you'll be able to find on this episode's page at filmjerk.com. And because you didn't have advanced sales and you were a discount theater selling tickets for two movies, if the guest wanted to stay for both, you couldn't start selling tickets for one show until the previous show let out and you saw how many people were staying for the next show. So if you had a 200-seat theater and you had sold 150 tickets to the 430 show of Baron Munchausen, you'd have to wait until it finished at 646. See how many people left the building. How many people went to the bathroom and or went to the snack bar to get more snacks? And then make sure you didn't oversell tickets for the 710 Bill and Ted when you finally opened up the theater for ticket sales around 655. Because as much as you want time for everyone to stop at the snack bar and get the goodies, you also don't want to keep the people who are sticking around for the second movie waiting more than half an hour. So here's how I would do it with that lineup. I've already established I want to stagger showtime so new movie starts within 15 minutes of each other. And I've already established that I would pair Bill and Ted with Baron Munchausen. And I've already established I would have Bill and Ted as my prime movie, even though Munchausen is 36 minutes longer and would have to play three shows a day to Bill and Ted's two shows per day. So I would run Munchausen first at 11.45 a.m., which would let out at 2.01. Now, that show won't be very busy, so we won't need much time to clean the theater and see how many people are staying over for Bill and Ted. So we can have a 24-minute intermission and start Bill and Ted at 2.25. That would let out at 4.05. And while that show would be busier than the 11.45 Munchausen, especially on Saturdays and Sundays, we won't need that much time to turn the theater over again. So we'll give ourselves 25 minutes and start Munchausen back up at 4.30. That lets out at 6.46 p.m., giving us 24 minutes again to turn it over to Bill and Ted's Prime Show at 7.10 p.m. Now, while that show will be rather busy, we'll give ourselves the same 25 minutes to turn it around so we can get Munchausen back on screen at 9.15. With the Rain Man Mississippi Burning double feature, we would play Mississippi Burning at 11.10 a.m., 4.45 and 10.20, and Rain Man, benefiting from its victory as Best Picture at the Oscars, would play at 1.55 and 7.30 p.m. That would give us 27 and 26 minutes each to turn the theaters around for the next show. I would put Beaches and She's Out of Control together because they're both female-centric stories, with the longer and more popular Bette Midler movie in the prime slot. So She's Out of Control would play at 12.55, 5.40, and 10.25, while Beaches would play at 3 and 7.45. Now, some of you might have noticed that there's only five minutes difference between the last showtime of Mississippi Burning and the last showtime of She's Out of Control. Yes, because your last shows of the night, you're not going to be that busy, so you don't necessarily have to worry about staggering the showtime. Some nights you might not even have a single person show up for either or both films. 
Okay, so now we're left with the Rescuers and Pink Cadillac. Not exactly a prime pairing. G-rated cartoon and PG-13 rated Clint Eastwood movie. Which is why you wouldn't be pairing these films at all. You'd be splitting the screen. You'd play the Rescuers during the day and Pink Cadillac at night. Because in many instances, especially concerning their animated movies, you cannot double up a Disney movie with another movie. But since you both know that an older G-rated movie like The Rescuers won't be doing much business after 6pm, Disney would let you play it during the matinee shows and then give the screen over to another movie for the evening performances. And because The Rescuers isn't doubled up with another film, you don't have to worry about keeping people waiting too long for the other feature. So you can find a good hole between the other films to put it in. So The Rescuers would go at 11.25 a.m., 1.30, and 4.15 p.m., and Pink Cadillac would run at 6.55 and 9.45 p.m. And that's how you would create showtimes for your little theater. I hope you were paying attention because there will be a quiz at the end of this episode. Now, there is one more reason that you want to make sure you have the best movies and the best showtimes. Or at least there was back in the 1980s. Commissions. As the general manager of a movie theater, part of your compensation included up to 2% of the snack bar sales going into your paycheck. If you were a nice manager, a good manager, you could elect to give up to half a percent of to your assistant managers. And, and I was a good manager, a nice manager. I had two assistant managers of the Blossom Hill, and I gave each of them a quarter percent. And let me tell you, it was not unusual for my 1.5% snack bar commission to be worth more than my regular paycheck. I wasn't making a whole lot of money as a 21-year-old dollar house movie theater manager, but it was a lot better than minimum wage at the time. I could finance a new car without a cosigner. I could afford my own insurance, both car insurance and health insurance. I could put a healthy amount of money into my 401k. And yes, if you have a job that offers a 401k, especially a job that will match your contributions, do it. Always take the free money. Always, always, always take the free money. But I digress. Movie theater general managers do not get commissions anymore. The companies gave their commissioned GMs and assistant managers a bump up in pay that was supposed to be equal to the average commission they had gotten each week over the previous two years. But then, if they raise the prices of the popcorn and soda and candy, the compensation for the commission removal didn't go up at the same time. They made more, and I made less. Welcome to capitalism. But I digress again. So, working at a movie theater as a general manager was a pretty cool gig, I have to admit. But for dollar house managers like myself, our sweet ride was about to ride off into the sunset. The summer of 1989 was amongst the biggest summers in movie history, and there was no movie that summer bigger than Tim Burton's Batman. Opening on June 23rd, Batman was a smash hit from day one, earning more than $100 million after only 10 days and $200 million after six weeks. And it remained popular the entire summer. At the time, home video was a growing market for the studios, but it wasn't quite the powerhouse it would eventually become. Movies would often be released on VHS a year or so after it was released in the theaters, in large part because dollar houses were still bringing in a decent amount of money for the studios. 
But after the massive success of Batman that summer, Warner Brothers decided to try something different. That fall, they announced that Batman would be released onto home video that November, just five months after being released to theaters at a price under $30. In order to tap into what they expected to be millions of young people who wanted to watch the movie again and again and again, and they weren't wrong. Several million copies of Batman were sold on videotape in the weeks between Thanksgiving and Christmas 1989. Hell, I bought a copy of the movie on tape, and I wasn't even that big a fan of the movie. It was, as best I remember, the first time a movie had been released onto home video while it was still playing in theaters, and still amongst the top 20 grossing movies nationwide at that. But you could also see the effects of the home video release on ticket sales. The weekend of November 17th, the 22nd week of release, the box office for the movie fell 65.5%, after never having fallen more than 42% in any week before, and it fell another 71% the week after that. And while dollar houses like mine had already been playing most of the big summer hits, from Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, to Lethal Weapon 2, to Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, to Dead Poet Society, we never saw Batman. We never got the chance to. It was still playing in over 500 first-run theaters nationwide when it was released on video, And Warner's made millions off of those first-week video sales, far more than the tens of thousands of dollars they would have made from releasing it to dollar houses. And that would be the first nail in the coffin for many dollar houses. The theatrical window started to shrink after that, from 12 months to 6 months to 3 months. And within a year and a half of Batman's release on video, a number of dollar houses nationwide had closed due to a major loss in business including my own theater. The owners of the shopping center would use the closure of the theater, along with the arrival of a new freeway, California State Route 85, also known as the West Valley Freeway, that would have an exit a block away to kick almost every business out of the complex and completely rebuild it, with a TJ Maxx occupying a new building where my theater once stood. That lasted for five years. Then it became a Comp USA. That lasted for 11 years. Then it became a Pacific Sales. That lasted for eight years. And now that space has sat empty for several years. Not that I care. I haven't been there in 30 years. As soon as my theater closed, I quit United Artists, moved to Los Angeles, and was working at the Cineplex Universal City 18, one of the five busiest theaters in the nation at the time, within two weeks. Today, there are still a few discount houses left. Of the more than 300 movie theaters operating in the greater Los Angeles market, according to box office tracking company Comscore, as of August 15, 2021, only two are discount theaters. They are both operated by Regency Theaters, only show two to three shows a day, and always single features. And this report from Comscore includes such markets as San Diego, Phoenix, Las Vegas, and Honolulu, in addition to Los Angeles. Of the more than 125 theaters in the New Jersey metro area, including North New Jersey and southwestern Connecticut, there is not a single operating discount theater. Ditto in Chicago, which has more than 100 theaters open at the moment. The San Francisco market has two, but that includes Carson City, Nevada. In the Seattle market, there is one discount theater in Anchorage, Alaska. 
That alone is nearly a thousand movie theaters, and there's only five discount theaters. In the late 1980s, that number would have been over a hundred. And that's our show for today. I hope you enjoyed it and learned a few things about the movie business past and present. As some of you know, this podcast is currently on a hiatus until October. I am recording this episode again because of the expected influx of new listeners I'm told has happened with other podcasts after the premiere of their interview with Podcast Father. So if you are new to the show, please take this time to check out some of the other episodes before our full return. I'm not greedy. I'll take one listen a week. Many of the episodes are in the 25 to 35 minute range, like this one. We'll talk again soon. Oh, wait, I almost forgot. I promised a contest on this podcast Twitter feed and earlier in the episode. So here's the contest. I'm going to give you a list of 22 movies that I have verified were playing in at least one discount house in the Los Angeles or San Francisco metro area, including my own theater, on Christmas Day in 1989. Pretend you're me, the manager of a four-screen discount theater. Put together your best playlist and send it to podcast at filmjerk.com with the subject header Christmas Day Programming Contest. I will choose one winner from whom I feel came closest to what I would have done. And that winner will get two passes to either AMC Theaters, Regal Theaters, or Cinemark Theaters. Winner's choice. I don't expect anyone to try to figure out the showtimes, and you're not going to get any bonus points for including them. Just tell me in the email which movies you'd put together and which ones you'd make the prime show on each screen. So here's a list of movies you can choose from. All Dogs Go to Heaven. The Bear. Black Rain. Crimes and Misdemeanors. Dad. Drugstore Cowboy. Family Business. The Fabulous Baker Boys. Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. An Innocent Man. Canine. Lethal Weapon 2. Like Father, Like Son. Look Who's Talking. Parenthood. Prancer. Sea of Love. Shocker. Turner and Hooch. Uncle Buck. And The Wizard. That's not a bad list of movies, actually. If you didn't get all those titles or are unfamiliar with some of the movies, I'll have the list up on this episode's page at filmjerk.com with links to their IMDb pages. Have your choices in by September 15th, 2021, and I will announce the winner via our Twitter feed at the underscore FJ underscore podcast by September 21st. Thanks for listening. We'll talk again soon. The Film Jerk Podcast has been researched, written, narrated, and edited by Edward Havens for Idiosyncratic Entertainment. Thank you again. Good night.